hello everyone, welcome to the LSE and the, uh, today's event which forms part of the 7th uh, LSE Literary Festival. Um, for anyone who's a Twitter user in the audience, apparently I've been told to tell you that the hashtag is LSE Lit Fest, if you want to tweet any thoughts you have. Um, can you please all switch off your mobile phones, binging devices? Um, the event is being recorded for posterity and we don't want bings showing up on the recording. Um, my name is Emma Worley. I'm chairing the event this afternoon and I'm the co-founder and chief operating officer of the Philosophy Foundation. Uh, we're a charity who train philosophy graduates to do philosophy in schools and then we send them off into schools to work with children from nursery all the way up to A-level. Um, uh, I'm uh, delighted to be uh, chairing this event, and I'd like to introduce our panel. Uh, we have Anne Fine, uh, wonderful author, um, Peter Worley. I'm going to say he's a wonderful author as well, but that's because he's my husband and I'm allowed to say that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Professor Luke Bovens from the LSE. Um, Anne is one of Britain's most distinguished authors. She's been nominated and has won hundreds of awards. She's twice Children's Laureate. Uh, once. Once, but for two years. Oh, for two I, I think that counts as twice. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, many of her films, uh, many of her books, rather, have been made into uh, BBC adaptations. And I'm sure you'll, you've all heard of Mrs. Doubtfire, which was made into a film with the late Robin Williams. Um, Luke is head of the Department of Philosophy, Logic and Scientific Method here at the LSE. He's coordinator of the MSC uh, Philosophy and Public Policy and he's currently working on a project to bring uh, ethics to high schools through world literature, which I think he's going to be talking about this evening. Um, Peter is the co-founder and CEO of the Philosophy Foundation. He's also um, a visiting research associate at KCL and uh, president of SOFIA, which is the European Foundation for Doing Philosophy in Schools. Uh, he's written lots of books, all practical guides to doing philosophy in the classroom, um, and I'm sure, and, and two of them actually are related to uh, stories and storytelling, so hopefully he'll be talking about that this afternoon. There will be time after the panellists have spoken for you to ask questions and for us to hopefully have a conversation about this. Uh, but first of all, I'd like to invite Anne to, to start us off. Thank you, Anne. <coughs> Thank you. Um, well, the first thing I need to say, of, of course, is that I am not a philosopher. Um, I've never studied philosophy, philosophy, and although I was married to a professional philosopher, Kit Fine, for getting on for 20 years, I have singularly little patience with most strands of philosophical thought. <laughs> One of our most memorable marital rows took off when our three-year-old daughter was nesting interminably on the loo and came out with the question, how do I know that all this around me is not a dream? And far from encouraging this burgeoning line in abstract thought, my response is to tell her sharply to get on and wipe her bum and get moving, because otherwise we're going to be very late for playgroup. And that did not go down at all well with the other parent who was listening. Um, so I'm a novelist. And though any of you who are interested in the various pains and amusements of living with and then getting divorced from a philosopher, are recommended to read my second black comedy for adults, Taking the Devil's Advice. But mostly I write for young people. Um, in my profession, you have to be able to think yourself back as a reader. Uh, 
myself at five, myself at nine, myself at 14. You need to keep in mind your own emotional, intellectual and social level at each particular reading age. And unless you're doing historical fiction or sci-fi or future dystopias or something, there is also the rather complicated business of dragging this awareness forward from your own now entirely out-of-date childhood to try to reflect present-day living. And as we all know, family life, schools, habits, entertainments all change a very great deal over the decades. So the job is mostly done with an often unconscious combination of memory, intuition and observation. Successful writing for children has to chime in with the child's capacity to receive. But if you do have that skill, you can write about almost anything. Now, my ex-hubby used to prize himself up from the breakfast table in the morning and he would mutter, well, off I go then, off to poke the lardy lumps into a bit of real thought. And in our own way, writers for children also take a sort of teaching role. Certainly many of us would argue that the novel is, and always has been, the best instrument we have for ethical inquiry. Um, How ought we to live is an intrinsic question in so much writing. In an essay called Why We Read Jane Austen, the critic Lionel Trilling explained that the aim of a traditional humanistic education was to read about the conduct of other people and see this conduct as relevant to our own in that it redeems the individual from moral torpor. So I get bored writing what I am, redeeming people from moral torpor. Um, Susan Sontag actually she put it a much, much simpler way. She said, sometimes I think the most important thing that I can do with my fiction is increase the sense of the complexity of things. And I want to give you a quick example of how easy this can be, even at the younger level. Um, When both of our daughters became vegetarian on moral grounds, I read Pete Singer's book, Animal Liberation, which was on the reading list of the university at which my husband was at the time teaching. He, He wasn't teaching it, he was a logician, but he was there. And it is essentially, I assume, a tertiary level text. But the ideas and the examples in it interested me enough for me to want to offer them to much younger children. And I'm going to read you just a little bit of a book called The Chicken Gave It To Me that illuminates, even for readers as young as seven or eight, the concept of speciesism. Now, my story is told by a chicken. Um, She's been in a battery cage all her life. Her feet and feathers are in a terrible state. There's no fresh air, no pecking, no chance of freedom. But then one day, the little green men from the little green planet arrive in their spaceship and they order the chickens out of their miserable (coughs) heads. You know, come on, you lot, off your big fat feathery bums and and get out of here. We, We need these cages for something else. And the chickens can't believe their luck. They get out of there and they flee. But meanwhile, the little green men refit the cages to make them bigger because the little green men are absolutely sick of eating chicken. That's what they've come to Earth for, because they actually prefer roast people. And people (laughs) are what they shove in the cages for their own convenience. And my narrator chicken tells how she gets so chicken-dippy with joy at being free that instead of having the sense to make for the hills, she wanders around in circles and ends up back under the battery cage sheds, where she reports what happens next. 
You couldn't help feeling sorry for the people. There they sat, squashed in so tight they couldn't stand, they couldn't stretch, they couldn't turn around. Their pale faces pressed up against the cage bars. What's going to happen to us? Let me out! Oh, oh, help us, please. Oh, it was pitiful. But they were one up on us poor chickens. They could at least argue with their jailers. Why are you keeping us in here? Are you planning to eat us? Afraid so. But that's outrageous. The little green man, busy filling their water troughs, was clearly a bit put out to hear this. What's so outrageous about it? You taste good. You can't just eat us because we taste good. Why not? Because we're people, that's why. The little green man shrugged. Pigs, chickens, people. What's the difference? Pigs and chickens are only animals. So, you're only people. But we're superior. Not to me, buster, said the little green man. And scowling horribly, he left the shed. When he came back, he brought a mate with him to give him a hand with the water troughs. These people here, he said, pointing to the inmates of the cages, they say they're superior. Not to me, they're not, his friend laughed. Just what I told them, scoffed the first little green man. The people were rattling their cage bars in a fury. We are, we are superior. Oh, come off it. The little green man lifted his hands and ticked his points off, one by one, on some of his willowy green fingers. Horses are stronger, swans are more loyal, chimps live more peaceably, seahorses have more babies, dogs follow a scent better, giraffes are taller, squids have better eyesight, camels go longer without water, jaguars run faster, and little green men know more languages. He had plenty of fingers left, but he'd got bored. I could go on and on, he said, picking up the last bucket and tipping the water smoothly into the last trough. In fact, I could be quite rude and say that the only thing you lot really had going for you was that you ran the whole planet. (laughs) And just before he slammed the shed door behind him, he added as an afterthought, oh yeah, and you taste better than chicken. (laughs) Um, Now, I studied history and politics at university, and a good few of my novels deal with exploring quite complicated socio-political issues in a way that young readers can get a grip of them. So the discussion of gender roles and conscious and unconscious sexism in, the prime, in, in society is explored in both Bill's New Frock and in Charm School. And in both The Granny Project and in The Road of Bones, written more for teenagers or certainly older children, I wanted to show exactly how it is that political theories colour our lives and how politics works. So though a tale of corruption, The Road of Bones reads um, first and foremost as an adventure novel. And Yuri starts out, as most of us do, a, a fairly political innocent. But he is bright and he is curious and he can't help but see how step by step his country's leaders whip up an atmosphere of fear and defensiveness in which it proves all too easy to persuade most citizens to give up the very freedoms that their government was seeking to defend and terrorise the rest into line. Um, Inasmuch as the novel shows where conviction politics can so inexorably read, 
the road of bones, though historical, set in a sort of Russia in a sort of 30s under a sort of Stalin, was written after that absolutely massive anti-war march that went nowhere because somebody we all know about had conviction politics, um, is as much perhaps even more of our time as any other novel I've ever written. I mean, its message is be on your guard, see things that are happening for what they are, and what they may lead to. Now, every single one of my readers and the people that you teach in schools will have a vote within a very few years. And it is important that they learn to think about what a vote is for and how to use it. And it is immodest to quote one's reviews, but the Hornbook magazine did say of this granny project one, the characters are reminders of how rarely writers create characters who not only act and react, but also think. Now, one of the things that philosophers seem to me to be very good at is inventing the sort of scenarios that illuminate the problems that interest them. Now, I don't claim for a moment that any of the examples in, um, on Planet Fruitcake stem from my own brain. They are all commonly known illustrations of the sorts of problems which philosophers tackle. All I've done... I'm harking back to this business where I said at the beginning, you've got to be able to chime in to the child's capacity to receive. All I've done is take situations and characters with whom children can readily identify and have them do the thinking. Now, I'm not saying that young people are incapable of abstract thought, because a goodly number of them are. But for the average child, the clothing of abstract thought with the setting and personalities and conversation can make it far less threatening far more immediate and comprehensible. Classroom or family conversations along the lines of she shouldn't have done that or that was mean or it would have been better if do deal with issues of ethics and moral philosophy. But if you tell a child that, for everyone to whom the idea appeals, there'll be five whom it scares off. So to finish, I've chosen to read to you a short bit from On Planet Fruitcake which is for younger readers, detailing an example that all the philosophers here will know perfectly well. Philip's teacher, the usually gentle Miss Dove, has been accused of wanting them to stop thinking, and she defends herself hotly. Only on planet fruitcake would I want you to stop thinking, she confidently declares. But as the day goes by, and they throw more and more little tricksy conundrums at her, the poor woman gets more and more ratty, and here is Philip annoying her <coughs> with an invented example more generally known as the ship of Theseus that illuminates one of the oldest and greatest problems of Western philosophy in what exactly is identity invested. Philip stood tall and straight. Suppose he said that I was a boat. He spread his arms. A huge, enormous boat. And I was called the one and only Philip and had a nameplate made for me and fixed on the side. Funny name for a boat, Beth muttered. Philip ignored her. And suppose one day in a bad storm my mast snapped off and fell into the sea and floated out of sight. You'd need a new one, Harry pointed out. Yes. So suppose my owner's got one exactly the same and fitted it on. And then there was another storm and this time all my sails were whipped away and so my owner's had more made. Exactly the same. That's right. And then the nameplate on my side fell off, and so everyone interrupted into chorus. Your own has had another maid exactly the same. Yes. 
then let's pretend we went out sailing every weekend, and just about every time we did, my owners noticed that one or another of the planks in me was going rotten, so they'd prise it out and chuck it overboard and fit in a new one. Just the same. Yes, just the same. And over the years, one by one, every single plank I had got thrown out and replaced. So I became a whole new boat. But because it happened so slowly and gradually, all of us still thought of me as the one and only Philip. He grinned. But suppose, behind him, he thought he heard a tiny groan <coughs> from Miss Dove. But he ignored it. Suppose it just so happened that my old mast and all my blown away sails and my boat's rusty nameplate and all the planks my owners had thrown out just happened to float away on the same ocean current. So one by one they all ended up on the same island. They were all gazing at Philip now, enchanted by the story. And on this island was a sailor who had been marooned for years. What's marooned? asked Fira. Stuck, Philip told her. Can't get off. But the sailor could make boats. So he used all the old bits that floated to his shore to make a boat of his own so he could escape. It took him years, but in the end he'd fitted them together. And it just so happened that he put them all in exactly the same places as they had been before. So by the time he'd finished, the boat he'd made just happened to look exactly the same, they chorused. Yes, exactly the same. And then he went sailing off. And just by chance he sailed past me and my owners, Philip grinned. Two ships... But we can't both be the one and only Philip, can we? He turned to face Miss Dove in triumph. See? Instantly everyone started arguing. Well, you're the first one, aren't you? You're the boat the sailor built from all the old stuff because that's what you were made from first. No, you're your owner's new one, even though you only turned into it gradually. I don't think you're either. If there are two of you, how can either of you be the one and only? And I think they're both you. No, that can't be right. The one and only Philip can't be two boats at once. That's stupid and impossible. Then it's the first. No, it's the second. Miss Dove strode to the window. She faced the street outside. Those of the class who sat nearby said afterwards that they had heard her counting very slowly, up to ten, under her breath. But even when she'd finished, most of the class was still arguing fiercely. It has to be the new boat, along with the owners that he had before. No, it's the other one made out of all the old builds, because that's more like what it was when it began. Well, I don't think that it's either of them now. Well, I still think it's both. Miss Dove spun round. Be quiet, she shouted. <laughs> I mean, there is, as I've already admitted to you, too much of Miss Dove in my own attitude towards philosophy. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Thank, Thank you very you. much. Um, uh, I may as well say now, some of these books will be on sale and Anne's going to be here to sign them afterwards. I certainly want to get my hands on taking the devil's advice, being married to a philosopher myself. It might be useful. <laughs> <laughs> um, and now I'd like Pete to start his little... Um, is it Do possible for us to just get the book? Yeah. I'll stay here, but I'll just don't... Yeah, oh. no, I'm just going to get this book. Do you want these, this screen Just on? the book's fine. Oh, oh yeah, we need the, yeah, the screen on, yeah. Do you want to change places? That's fine. I'll stay here. I know what I'm doing, don't worry. It's up on this screen. Everyone could come around here and have a look. <laughs> yeah, Send to a projector, I I've think. I've done that. Oh, yeah. Oh. All done. 
I have a clicker, so we'll see if that works too. Um, so I, I, I do a lot of work in schools, and um, the whole nature of our, our work at the Philosophy Foundation is to facilitate discussions. Our view of philosophy is that philosophy is about conversations. So now I'm just about to talk at you for ten minutes, uh, which isn't really in the spirit of what we're about. Uh, and in fact, you know, you might have heard the whole conundrum about how do I know everything isn't just a dream. We just heard that from Anne. And um, I mean, I, I don't really know if you're just an elaborate hologram. And until I have an inter- a, a conversation with you, I, I still won't know that. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say some stuff which hopefully will be of interest to at least one of you um, for the next five minutes. But then later I think we'll move into a more conversational style. So that'll be, I'll be much happier then. Um, OK, so I'm from the Philosophy Foundation. And um, we do philosophy in schools. And philosophy in schools has, goes back quite a way now. The people, the, the person, Matthew Lippmann, who started the movement um, in the late 60s, early 70s in America, he began doing philosophy with children using literature, using books. The children used to sit and read the book together, maybe paragraph at a time, um, and every so often they would stop and discuss what they've been doing. And that's how the, what's, um, what's now known more generally as P4C, Philosophy for Children, how it began in the States. Uh, later on, uh, and certainly in this country, things changed a bit. Um, there were some problems with, with reading, of course, you know, trying to do philosophy using a book um, became something of a barrier for those children that perhaps couldn't read well. Um, the books may not be particularly inspiring when they're read badly by children, if they're read badly. Not all children read badly, of course. So there's a number of barriers to doing the philosophy, or even barriers to, to, the, to the literature. Um, so then later on in this country, particularly, a movement based around picture books grew up. So philosophy with children was done, and is done to a great extent in this country, using picture books. Um, as a starting point for discussion. And, of course, this, this gets around the problem of children being able to read or not because they can have the story read to them and they can see what's going on in the pictures. And very often the picture books are very advanced and complex these days where the text and the images are, um, are integrated such that the story can't be told with one, um, has to be told with both. Um, now, at the Philosophy Foundation, we, we have done both of these, uh, used literature and used picture books. But what we've tended to find ourselves veering towards is a different way of introducing children to literature, and that is storytelling. Um, an age-old way of um, communicating stories. Uh, and interestingly, what I found about storytelling as a main way of telling stories is that that it takes away all the barriers. There's no literature, you don't have to read, you don't have to look at pictures, it's just a direct form of communication. Right, so that's a a kind of overview of how things have gone from literature to picture books and and now to storytelling, although of course storytelling has been done a lot earlier than either of those two. But I'd like to I'd like to explore the ways in which um, literature is used to, to bring people or children to philosophy and maybe question some of the ways in which it's used. 
So my talk is called um, Instrumental or Intrinsic. So I'd like to suggest that the Philosophy for Children movement is a bit obsessed with using what's called a stimulus. All right? So the idea is that the literature um, or the picture book or whatever it is acts as a stimulus to its audience. Uh, you read the story, the, the children then res respond to it in some way. But it strikes me that the way in which it's used is very instrumental. Um, there's no expectation about how the child responds or interprets the text. They simply respond to it however they do. I mean, you could use an apple as a stimulus. Children can respond to an apple left in the middle of the room in a similar kind of way. In other words, how they respond to it is up to them. And I think that, that there's, it, it, there's something missing in this approach. I mean, it's a very good approach in many ways for doing philosophy, but it kind of sidesteps the book itself, the text itself. The child is simply responding and interpreting it as they do. Um, so I myself have done a similar thing where I've used stories to engage children, tell a story such as the story of Theseus, in order to set up the problem of the ship of Theseus. But again, in, my, in the early days of doing this, this was unsatisfactory, because um, I would tell the story, and it would be, it would be a fun story for the children, they'd, in, they'd enjoy it. Then I'd explain the problem of the ship of Theseus, where, the, as we've just had it explained to us by Anne, uh, the parts of the ship are replaced gradually over time, and the question is, is it the same ship? But I needn't have told the story. I could have just put the problem to them. I could, have just, um, I could have just put a model on the floor of a ship, and I often do this, um, and get them engaged with where it's the same ship when the parts are being replaced. There's no need for the story. So I thought to myself, this is a very instrumental use of stories, and, and to some extent it kind of sidesteps the stories. All of these approaches sidestep the story. So we started to change our approach to doing, uh, using stories in the classroom to try and get back to the story, to make the... To, to, to make the story have an intrinsic value again, but also to be able to do the philosophy. So one way in which I started to do this was to simply take the question, the question we would start with, um, to give the children a question from the story itself, to find the question determined by the events of the story. Now, a very obvious example in which this might be done might be with something like a dilemma. And in the Odyssey, for instance, which is one of the stories that I've used in classrooms, um, we, Odysseus is faced with many dilemmas. And you can simply ask the children to take the position of Odysseus, or one of the crew members, to say, well, what should happen here? So I think this is one very good way in which we can get children engaged in certainly ethical, um, in some cases other than ethical discussions, using the text itself, finding the question within the text. Um, for instance, I find that Shakespeare is actually very good at this. If you, if you want to find a good question to put to children from a, from a passage by Shakespeare, the question is always usually there. Um, so, for instance, in the Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow speech from Macbeth, at one point he says, life is... I can't remember how the speech goes, but he says in the end that it, he says something about it. it. It does all these things, and then at the end he says, signifying nothing. Um, and, and a really nice question to put to children is to simply ask them. Does life signify anything? Or you could, if you want, change signify to mean to make it slightly more accessible. But the question is there. Another way that I've found 
that's very effective is to draw upon the Socratic tradition. And Socrates um, used a method of discussion in the marketplace where he would, he would engage um, the, Athenian, um, the Athenian citizens with questions in the agora, the marketplace. And he had a method which I've been using with children, which works very well with stories. So I remember one of our specialists was doing the, um, the Odyssey. She was telling one of the stories. I think the story in which Odysseus ends up um, in a dilemma about whether to return and save his men that have been turned into pigs by Circe, or whether to cut his losses and leave the island with the remaining surviving men um, so, uh, so that they don't put themselves all in danger and all get turned into pigs. And he's got to decide, should I leave, like my friend Eurylochus is advising I do, or should I go back and save them? And at one point... I can't remember if this is in Homer or in my version, but anyway, he says, he says, Good <laughs> he says um, uh, to his friend Eurydicus, he says, I have no choice. I have to go and save my men. I have no choice. Eurydicus is very upset because he thinks this is going to be the end of all of them. And the question I put to the children was, does Odysseus have a choice? And what happened on this occasion was that the specialist then went into a discussion about choices, what choices are. And it was a great discussion. But the story had been neglected again. Nobody had come back to the story. We're talking about the nature of choices. This was great. But where's the story? Why did we spend the first 15 minutes telling this wonderful story and then have this discussion about choices? Well, what we do is we use a, we use a method um, that we've developed called, um, well, affectionately called the hokey-cokey method, because the question is in, out, and then in again. So the, the method we would use is that we might start with a concrete question. And a concrete question is you know, a, a question that is in the story. It refers to the characters, and it has something to do with what's going on in the story. So in this case, should Odysseus, um, does Odysseus have a choice? Then we go to an out-of-the-story question. We abstract, and we might say to the children, well, what exactly is a choice? Which is exactly what my colleague had done. But what she'd forgotten to do was going back into the story and then saying, right, if, if, if what you said is, is a choice, if a choice is X, Y, and Z, and the children will say all sorts of different things about what a choice is, then should Odysseus, does Odysseus make a choice, or is he able to make a choice? And that, essentially, is the sort of method we use. We start with the question that's in the story, we abstract out, and then we go back in. Very Socratic, in that, you know, Socrates would often say, you know, what is beauty or whatever, whatever, and then he would want to know of a particular instance and say, right, OK, well, is that an instance of beauty? And we can test everything we've said in the abstract against the, um, the, the particular example in the real world, which is, which is what we do here, except, of course, it's not in the real world, it's in the supposed world that the book gives us which is great, um, because then we don't actually have to have children um, doing these things. They can just rehearse them. Um, and then finally, I would say that um, there's an interesting distinction between the way we use stories um, to, th to bring them to a philosophical discussion, but then we could go even more into the story and actually think about the story itself. This is really difficult to do with children. So, for instance, starting off with a discussion about 
you know, using a story to bring you to a discussion about change or about choices is one thing. But what about thinking about the story, not just with the story? Interpreting the story. This is the, this is the trickiest area. Now, I'm probably running out of time, so I ought, I ought to drink, draw to a close. Um, uh, so, so that's my latest area of interest, and maybe a little later when we do, um, take questions, I, I might be able to say more about how we, we're bringing children to um, the hermeneutical aspect of, uh, of stories. In other words, interpreting the story for themselves rather than simply using the story to bring them to a question which goes even further into the story. Thank you very much. Thank you, Pete. He only used hermeneutical to make you feel uncomfortable, Anne. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd wondered how long it would be before we came on with one of these words. 35 minutes. <laughs> Great. Um, Pete's books are also all on sale uh, afterwards, and, and he'll be there for the signing, um, including the Odyssey, which may be better than Homer's, according to Pete. <laughs> I never said that. I never said that. Um, and finally, we have Luke, who's uh, going to tell us about the ethics in high school. Thanks very much. Um, so I've, I've been teaching moral philosophy for many years in, in an academic context. And um, so the question arose, you know, well, what should you do when you want to teach ethics in high school, right? And, you know, one answer one could give is like, look, you know, you do algebra at university, you make it, you know, you write a textbook that's a little bit simpler than what you give to the kids in university, right? You know, you, you just make it a little bit simpler and that's what you do. So, you know, we may read Kant when we want to do deontology in university, but we just write a kind of simple Kant, and that's what we're going to give to the to the to the students in in high school. And and I think that's that's just a complete mistake. I mean, it's just not going to go anywhere. And I think one of the reasons is that you know our goals would be very different when we're teaching ethics in high school. You know, we want, and, and we have to ask ourselves, you know, what is it that we really want to convey here, right? And, you know, you want kids to learn how to think about moral problems, recognize moral problems, and then we also want to teach them how to have the courage to do the right thing <coughs> and, and, in a way, develop their, their, their moral character, okay? So if that's what we aim to do, I think a simplified moral philosophy text for high school would be just a mistake. I mean, it would be the same as if you would say, oh, you know, we want to, to, to develop kids' um, artistic talents, right? And here is a textbook about aesthetics. Why don't you read that? It's like, no, no that's not going to work. That's not going to make them into great painters or great writers or great musicians or whatever. That's just not the way to do it, right? Um, because it has this kind of practical component to it. We want to teach those kids how to, how to recognize what is the right thing to do, how to have the courage to do the right thing, how to develop, in a way, their moral character. So the question is, of course, you know, how would you do that? Now, you know, this is a point that was raised by, by Aristotle many, many years ago, and, and the idea was that, you know, if you want to... If you want to develop the, the moral sense in, in, in children, you know, don't do moral philosophy with them. It's a, it's a dumb thing to do. What you need to do is you need to, you, you need to be a role model for them. And when they come to imitate you doing the right thing, 
then they sort of habituate themselves towards doing the right thing. And that's how you develop moral character. And then once you have it, then you can start thinking about it. Right? But it's that first project, how to bring that about. Now, of course, you know, we're in high school. You know, what is it to, to present role models, right? Now, I'm thinking here about... Um, there's a passage in, in Kurt Vonnegut um, where he talks about, uh, about short stories. And, and he says there was a great time when, you know, there was no TV yet and all these magazines would come in. And, you know, you would, you would try to get your hands on the magazine first because full of short stories. And that, then it was like the discussion topic in the family over dinners. Did you read this story? What would you have done? You know, what was the problem? You know, what is it that the author wants to bring out and stuff like that? And you would have these great discussions about, you know, what is the moral issue here and what would have been the right thing to do, Right. And, and these were the kind of discussions people had over the, over the dinner table. And I thought, you know, that, that's interesting. Now, there's something about short stories which brings that out. Because they <coughs> always sort of put, well, always is saying too much, but many short stories take ordinary people, and all of a sudden these ordinary people are faced with life-changing decisions. And what do they do? And they typically sort of start in the middle of the action, and they stop before the whole thing comes to an end, so you sort of have to tell the end yourself, right? And, and, and that's the kind of discussion that, that would happen around the dinner table and that would, in a way, be instrumental in, in developing a moral sense amongst the participants of these discussions. And I thought, you know, that's interesting, this Kurt Vonnegut idea. Um, and furthermore, if we're going to work with teenagers in high school, got to have something with, you know, that, that sort of caters to their short attention span, right? Um, I mean, we used to read Crime and Punishment in, in high school, but we all cheated, you know, kind of cliff notes, right? And, and, and short stories, you don't need to cheat. You just read the, read the whole thing. So then I was thinking, well, you know, how could we do something like that, right? And I thought, you know, let's give it a little bit more, more structure, um, and, and let's also think about the fact that there's all that money laying around in the European Union. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, now, maybe an interesting idea would be if we would take all the countries of the European Union and Norway and Switzerland get to play along as well, right? And for every country, we would find a short story that would be able to elicit that kind of conversation, right? And that's what we've been doing over the last couple of months Working with some working with some students who are sitting in the British Library and reading all kind of short stories from Malta to come up with something interesting, um, and and so we're really kind of scouting um, scouting out these, these collections of short stories to find stories that really work well for that purpose. And then the idea is every country comes up with a particular story. Ideally, it should also say something about their own culture, maybe feature one, feature one of their great writers, and so on. Um, and, and then, you know, you, you put that on the website, um, say a little word about the author, say a little bit about the, the background, and then write a short, short attention span, philosophical commentary about it. You know, where would you take this issue? What could you do with this philosophically, with this short story, to sort of guide the, the discussion in the right direction? 
Um, and that's what we've been, been working with. Um, you know, the money hasn't been coming in, but we're very hopeful. Um, <laughs> so what other things I think would be, would be good to do here? Well, I think there's an interesting research component about this too, because there is always this question about, you know, what is European identity? Is there a European moral vision, right? And what are the differences, the cross-country differences? Um, are there certain themes that, that, that merit more attention? from one country rather than from other countries and so on, right? And sort of connecting this to the World Values Survey would be an interesting thing to do. Um, furthermore, I think there's a, a real potential here to do something like integrative learning. So if you set up this website in such a way that, you know, the, the, the kids in Sweden and the kids in Bulgaria are reading the same story, right? And then they talk to each other. Yeah, they talk to each other on Skype, they discuss things, you know, you set two classes up and they start discussing things <coughs> with each other. That's sort of the hope. Or they want to put on a little play. They want to um, shoot a little uh, movie about, you know, acting out wh wh whatever is happening in the short story. Put it up on YouTube, share things and so on. So, you know, really exploit social media in order to get kids to do some, some, some sort of integrative learning here. Um, another Kurt Vonnegut story was, you know, there is there is sort of the there, there was a time when writers would try their hand on their trade by writing these short stories and sending them to the magazines. If the magazines didn't want to publish them, it was probably not your true mission in life. Try to do something else with your life, right? But now, you know, there is sort of the idea that people try their hand on a great novel. And then when that fails, well, that was two years of your life, right? So I think actually the idea of short stories is a very nice thing to try your hand on. And if you give it to young people and you say, you know, try to do things like this, right? You also sort of tap into their creative talents and, and they're trying to figure out whether, you know, they got a writer within them in a way. And, and, and so that's the kind of thing I think that is also interesting about the story, sort of tapping into the creative talent of these young people. There's an issue of language learning. Now, I think it would be important, actually, that people can read the stories in their, in their mother tongue, that they're not struggling with, you know, the various original languages or translations in English or whatever. So I think it's important that they're able to read those stories in their mother tongues. They would be able to discuss things over Skype, of course, in whatever common language they have. Um, that would be the ideal. Um, but, but that's, of course, you know, a big undertaking, that is to get that huge translation project set up so that all these stories these, of these various countries become available in, their, in the mother tongues of these um, children. Um, so, so that would be our, our hope. Um, do we still have a minute, or should we open it up? Uh, it's up doing? to you. Have you, yeah? have you said everything you Okay, I'll, I'll give you one story, just to give you an example, right? So Henry Böll has this story, to work or not to work. It's this um, person sitting on some, some island left or right, and, um, you know, there's a German tourist coming by, and the German tourist says, you know, oh, how are you doing? He says, great, it's a wonderful day today. You know, I just went out fishing, and I got one lobster and a few sardines. I'm all set for the day. Right? Oh, says this German tourist, and it must be good weather for fishing. Oh, yeah, this is absolutely wonderful. He says, well, why don't you go out again, you know, and get, get some more lobsters? He says, why would I do that? He says, well, you, see, you can sell them on the market, right? He says, well, why would I do that? He says, well, you know, you can buy better fishing equipment, right? And then, you know, he said, oh, 
would I do that? Say, well, tomorrow with your better fishing equipment, you can buy five. You can, you know, you can you can catch five. You can catch fifty um, lobsters and so on. It'd be a great thing to do. He says, no, what's the point of that? You know. And he says, well, he says, you know, once once you make some money on the market, you can buy yourself a nice boat and a trawler, and he gets all excited, right? And, you know, and this, this guy is just kind of sitting there enjoying the sun, and he always says, you know, why would I do that? Why would I do that? And, you know, by the end of the story, you know, the German tourist has this idea, like, you know, you've got a whole fleet of trawlers, you know, and so on. Right? And he says, well, why would you do that? He said, because... When you have that fleet going, you can just relax and sit back and enjoy the sun, you know. And he says, but I'm already doing that. Right? Now, I think it's a wonderful story, right? But, you know, it, it's the sort of story that you can use in order to start discussing with young people, you know, what's the value of, of work what, in, a, in a meaningful life? You know, what is, what is, a, uh, what is the, the place of ambition in a person's life? You can ask questions about responsibility because, of course, today was a good day for fishing, but the next couple of days may not be such a good day of fishing. Who's going to take care of that person then? Does that person have a responsibility to take care of him or her? when there were other options available for the person in question. So, you know, you can, you can get, you know, great discussions going about philosophical topics, but I would always keep them very, very close to the story itself and, and not sort of prejudge it and say, oh, I want to get, you know, to the deontology utilitarianism debate. You know, keep it very close to the story, exactly the sort of thing that we would be doing around the, the dinner table exploring, you know, moral issues. Um, and I think when we do that, we're actually very close to discussing moral issues in our own lives. And in that way, I think it's a great preparation uh, for young people. Great. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I think Philip K. Dick said that the short story is the, the main character of a short story is the ideas. So perhaps that's what you're picking up on. You know, the ideas in short stories are the important important thing. I'm going to open up to the floor and take questions. If you've got a question, put your hand up and the people with the roving mics will come and hand you a microphone. Could you say your name and where you're from before you ask your question, please? Thank you. Hi, I'm Christina Davis and I'm a philosophy teacher at a secondary school. Um, if I'd know a little bit about P for C, but not about um, what, what you were talking about, Pete. Um, with P for C, one of my concerns about it is that, um, that, that because of the focus on conversation, there doesn't seem to be a much focus on, um, on the outcome and on pursuit of truth. And um, if one of the aims of teaching ethics is to develop moral character, how does one... Um, how does one guide students towards right answers? Um, so, if so, one of my experiences as a school teacher is that students are very inclined to think relativistically about moral issues. So, how does one how, how does one uh, deal with um, dodgy viewpoints that are expressed? Essentially, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, well, it, it, the idea behind behind the conversational dialogic way of working with children is that they kind of deal with the dodgy. Concept. So, I, I, I remember once I was in a class where we were doing this thing about vouchers. There were these things on the floor that act like money, and they had they were in different communities, and they had to work out how they were going to get them and how it would be fair to distribute them. Um, although that came later. And one of the children said, "Well, you just 
the way to deal with the problem we've got not enough vouchers, too many people. He said, we just kill all the stupid people. And, I, you know, there was, there was slight moral outrage in my, in my soul when I heard this child. And I thought to myself, what do I do? Do I, do, I just, do I tell them off? Do I say that's not appropriate? And then I looked around and I saw all these hands up like this. <laughs> and I thought, I really don't need to. The group is going to deal with this. Um, and because the group knows that they're supposed to challenge each other, and that's the whole point of this, this exercise. Um, and it wasn't long before some of the children were putting their hands up, and one of them, I remember, said, uh, well, you know, if we, if we kill all the stupid people, then you'll have to kill me. <laughs> and that, was, that sort of silenced him, I remember. Um, someone else said, well, if, if you kill all the stupid people, then you'd miss, you'd miss hidden talents. You know, what about all those talents you didn't even, hadn't even discovered yet? Now, what we get to here with moral development is really interesting in terms of the way philosophy in schools works, because we do the Ring of Gyges, uh, the story uh, Plato tells where he puts a ring of invisibility on. It's a great way to get children thinking about ethics and also meta-ethics too, um, because you ask the first question you ask them is, if you found this ring of invisibility, what would you do with it? What would you do? And uh, they say all sorts of stuff, and they'll say things like, you steal stuff, uh, you know, maybe um, steal stuff, they'll talk about playing tricks on each other, getting revenge, all sorts of stuff like that. Teachers sitting there like this. And I'm saying, calm down, don't worry, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. Because the very next question we do is we ask them, well, what should you do? And the list is very different. The things they say are very different. They've got a what would you do list and a what should you do list. And the lists on the board are totally different. Well, there may be a little bit of overlap, but very often very different. And this is great. It's a great stimulus to getting them thinking about, you know, what the difference between would and should is. So we get into a sort of more, more meta discussion. What are these things? Um, but what's amazing is that some of the children will say things like, well, when we get onto the question of whether you should do the shoulds or whether you should do the woulds, um, some of them will say, well, if you can't get caught, you can just do whatever you want. It's fine. And when the children say that, it's great, because we know the other children are then going to respond to it. They're going to react. They're going to put their hands up and say, I've got something to say about that. And we end up, in the best sessions, we end up with children saying things like, um, you shouldn't do wrong because um, you couldn't live with the guilt. Okay? You shouldn't do wrong because, uh, because even though you won't get caught, it actually impacts on other people, and that matters. Um, going on like that. You get those kinds of reasons. Whereas had you not gone through this process, if you'd asked them why they shouldn't do wrong, they would say, so I don't get caught, because Miss said, and because it's wrong, isn't it? So the point is, they're not... Before you've gone through this process, they give very unreflective answers. But when you go through this process and allow them to go to the most controversial edges of their thought, the group itself then regulates that and gets to the point where they give, give themselves really... Much more, much more motivating reasons why they should do good. Ones that the arguments they've constructed rather than ones that have simply come down from on high. And it's much more effective. So that would be... Yeah, I don't need, I don't need convincing of that. Um, I, I would agree that, um, that that's a good way to deal with it. Perhaps Luke has something to say on that as well? Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering actually, you know, one of the things that, that one, one tries to do in... In, in bringing bring people together from different cultural backgrounds in a way which you know what's trying to do in in this project is that you know you want to kind of stimulate tolerance but then 
you want to say too, well, you know, isn't that just pushing us into cultural relativism, right? But I think I think the hope there is that in thinking about these moral issues, that we will often, even though we may have very different practices and may think that one should do this or should do that, and there may be incompatibilities, it may well be the case that the same principles underlie our decision-making, but they get implemented in very different contexts. And, and that, I think, gets us to a point where we see that, you know, no, it's not about relativism or anything goes. Our decisions are, in a way, principled, but we do understand each other doing very different things because these principles are implemented in very different contexts, given very different institutions. And I guess then we would win the game because we would both increase a sense of tolerance and understanding, but we would also win the game in the sense that we see that both of our actions are actually principled. Right? It's just that they're implemented in different contexts. And I guess that's sort of the, the hope of, of you know, going that narrow path between the, the relativism and... Yeah. Um, actually, has anyone got a, another question? Um. Excuse me. No, my name's Ian Orr. I did philosophy at university, but then I spent a career in the diplomatic service where you hit plenty of ethical and political philosophy problems from time to time. Uh, what I was interested in is the extent to which you were talking very much about stories uh, as a way of introducing philosophy, but these were stories, as it were, being told. What, to what extent do you think it's useful to have uh, children writing <coughs> stories and for the discussion to flow out of asking them why particular elements were in it? I was thinking particularly because uh, one rather good genre uh, is the mini saga, where you have to tell a story in 50 words. I think uh, Brian Aldiss has edited a couple of them. And it's surprising how often uh, the point to make the story interesting within 50 words, you've got to raise some sort of issue or question mark is sort of often embedded in it and, and therefore it's quite a good way of teasing out questions to ask uh, and letting them come from the student's imagination. Um, I'd like to put this to Anne actually because I know you spent your, a lot of your childhood in school writing furiously your essays in your English lesson. Is this a... Yeah, I'm not sure I am the right person to answer it because... <laughs> <laughs> because... Um, I suppose, yes, yes, obviously I, I've, I've written a lot, but I don't do any creative writing in schools and I don't really know what left to themselves they write about. I mean, I judge competitions and I'm <coughs> often quite shocked that, you know, they've been rigidified into all writing the story of the, the drummer boy of Richmond or something and I'm just horrified. But um, I, I, I've got nothing useful to... to to, to add about this, I, I think that children's writing at the young age tends to be all too often... Uh, well, I, I think it's necessary that you go through a derivative stage. I don't think the words, you know, this, this is derivative is in any way... Um, uh, I don't think it's, it's got any relevance to primary school, but, you know, either they're all doing um, Harry Pottery stories or they're doing Enid Blyton stories or they're doing 
these dystopian stories. I mean, they, they, t- they tend very often just to be doing the thing. If you were to ask them, write a moral story or write a story about somebody who has an ethical di- dilemma, I can imagine there would be two or three in the class that would do a marvellous job. But, but I suspect that mm. it is one of those issues where you would actually... I mean, personally, somebody who can't stand having people breathing over what I'm writing, and I don't want to share it with anybody till I've finished, and I didn't when I was a child. But I think there are times in a classroom where discussing ideas about gets you a lot richer, very, very... And I suspect this is one of them, that, that you'd have to chum them through this, is, is what I'm saying. And, and that's not very helpful anyway, is it? <laughs> no, maybe not. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you've done some work with writing. Yeah, I've got some exercises that I do, creative writing exercises, which are also designed to sort of get them thinking. And one exercise I do is get pair them up. So there's two children, and one of them comes up with a list. They have a list of things that they have to do. So who's in the story? You know, when does it happen? And they come up with all the sort of features of the story. What's the problem? Um, um, How does it get resolved? Does it get resolved? A series of questions, guided questions that... They answer. And then what they do is they give that to the other child, and the other child has to write the story based on what the other has given them. And the idea behind this is that they kind of have a... They have to do what the story says. They have to try and... So they're not allowed to introduce new things. They have to use what they've got from the other child and then kind of... um, Stick. So that's that's one way in, in which I've got them, and of course along the line they have to think about what a problem is, why is it a problem, how might it get resolved, and all these sorts of things are, are really good to discuss as we go along. Um, but there's also a story that accompanies that, in which a little girl finds a book um, that writes. She puts stuff into one book, and another book writes the book magically, um, and she has a lot of fun, and she realises that she doesn't have to just have um, a girl named Matilda. It could be a dragon named Matilda. The, the, you know, the, the point is that she doesn't have to get stuck with all the usual clichés which children just naturally go towards. They love clichés. Um, but but another, another interesting thing is when you're actually getting... I was talking earlier about hermeneutics, getting children interpreting a text, and something you mentioned just now reminded me of something that I do in the classroom. So I've got this exercise where you, you tell people a story... And then what you do is you say to them, right, I'd like you to tell me what happened in the story, um, but I want you to tell me what happened in as few words as possible. Now, this gets around one problem, in that children tend to, when they say, when they tell you what happened in the story, they go, and then, and then, and then, and it takes them longer to do the summary than it did to tell the original story. So this is one way to get, this is one just straightforward way of getting around that problem. But the next thing that happens is that we have a little contest. So if somebody says it in 30 words, I'll say, is there anybody in the room who said it in less? Until eventually we get to things like, um, uh, you know, oh, I can say it in three words. Okay, and I don't know if you know the peddler of Swaffham, famous old story um, about a man who f- who has a dream to go to London Bridge, and then when he finally goes to London Bridge, he get he meets another man who's had a dream about a pot of gold in his garden, something like that. And the the children had reduced it, and they'd they'd, they'd said what happened until eventually this boy said, "I I can say it in three words," and, he, and all he said was, "Follow your dreams," and at which point he'd moved from the literal reading of the text, to something like a moral. He'd identified a moral, and he'd been able to sort of... So, so interestingly, that exercise of getting them to reduce the number of words seems to 
encourage them to move towards interpreting a text uh, rather than just listing the sequence of events. I guess it's a bit of the same problem that we have in you know, teaching students how to, to think for themselves in philosophy, to do creative work, right? And there is this joke that uh, a student wrote on, 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 on the teaching evaluation, you know, the professor told us to be creative, but she didn't tell us precisely how to do that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, but it, it is a very difficult problem, right? It is how do you get people to be creative, right? And, and my only sort of contribution here with the, with the short stories is that I think crime and punishment is not the right model, right, to get young kids to start writing, right? I think the idea of, you know, a sh- of a short story and try to emulate that is a, is a very good way to get kids to start writing. Um, One of the but things how to do the exercises, I don't know. One of the things they do a lot in primary schools, particularly, that does work is choosing something out of a book and then um, getting the children to write a letter from one character to another or that sort of thing. And it can obviously quite often be a moral thing. I mean, there's a book called Crummy Mummy in which the the mother refuses to give the elk sponsorship money to her daughter because, um, because she disapproves of animals being kept in zoos. And the child goes off to school, you know, really cheesed off, you know, so that was really mean of her. It was only 20p. 20p's not going to keep the zoo gates open, is it? And, and on the way, she starts to imagine what it would be like to be an animal in a zoo and has changed her mind. But, you, I mean, I've seen classes where every child has had to write um, a note back to mum saying what they think of, you know, mum. Uh, you know, was it mean or was it not? And it is interesting that they will plump down on different sides of this story. Half the class will think that it was really childish of mum to withhold and the others will say, actually, and, and these are presumably mm-hmm. diplomatic moral issues. How evil can you be for a greater good? Do you want to come back on this? Oh, I'd like, like to come back to this idea, of, to this idea of moral development um, and, and teaching virtue through stories. Um, and I'm always slightly uncomfortable of this. I remember, I think Mary Shedlock, in 1915, storyteller, said that, you know, we, the children should learn... Um, how they should behave through the career of the hero. Um, and, of course, this is the classic way in which stories have been used throughout millennia to, mm. to teach the children how they should be. And I'm, I'm very wary of this. So the, the method that I'm much more comfortable with, especially doing philosophy, is where you activate a moral agent um, rather than, rather than um, sort of fill a, a, a passive vessel sort of idea. And, for instance, there are a number of ways in which you can do this. You could, you could read um, a story right the way through and then at the end ask them, what, what do they think? And try and get them to engage. It's very difficult to get a child to engage critically with a book when the, when the story's been read all the way through and they know what the moral is. They know what the outcomes are. They know who, got, who did well and who didn't do well. Uh, so it's much better to stop a story as you go along. When the story reaches a crisis point, for instance, the child is then activated to think either as if they were the character, what should I do, or to maybe they're activated to think in order to help the character, because the character may have a problem they need to overcome to get on. Um, so the child is, is in either way, they're, both, they're, they're activated to think at a point when the story hasn't yet spelled out what you should think. So how you engage students with, um, with stories I think is really, really crucial. 
Um, the active rather than the passive is what yes. I'm getting at here. Do you mind if we go back to the floor and then... Um, hi, um, my name's Ruth and I work at LSE. Um, when I was at school in London in the 80s and 90s, I was lucky enough to benefit from a curriculum that was made up of uh, reading from all over the world. So when we had an, ontho- an anthology, it, was, it included poetry from the Caribbean and South America. and um, This kind of gave us a feeling of, of curiosity and um, an appreciation rather than necessarily uh, tolerance, as, which a word is maybe associated with something you have to put up with. But um, I think the benefit of the kind of work that you're doing is that you're not necessarily part of the curriculum, so you can come in and deliver anything that you choose that you feel is of of value Um, and in a lot of schools in urban areas in the UK and in many cities in Europe um, very many of the children are from all over the world and would really uh, be engaged by reading material that that reflected that Um, Whereas at the moment what's happening with the curriculum is that it's, it seems to become more traditional, so they're offered war poetry or Chaucer, more likely. And which there's value in this as well, of course, but I think you know, you're in a unique p- place where you can try and see what it is that young people would really enjoy and... Uh, and it would be very, very many things. So I, I just wonder what you, th- what you think about that. So. Certainly the case, I think that... Um, sorry, just no, no, you go ahead. Um, certainly the case that we are in a, in a, a lovely position at the moment, this, doing philosophy in schools, because we are accepted enough to be able to you know, do it and earn a living and be able to provide work for other philosophers who are also doing this. So there's a sense in which we're part of the system, but we're also on the periphery of it. So in other words... There's no one turning up at the door saying, right, I'm going to mark you on how you're doing this and we're going to assess you. You know, So we have a, a wonderful amount of freedom at the moment and, the, of course, that can only change. <laughs> um, and I, I dread the day when someone turns up uh, with a clipboard to assess me on, on my own method and tell me I've done it wrong or something like that. That would just be crazy. But that's, what, that's the sort of thing that will happen. Uh, Luke, did you have something to add on... Yeah, I think the, the interesting thing about trying to teach ethics in, in high school is that it, it looks like there isn't quite a set curriculum here. And, and there is kind of a movement throughout Europe of you know, how we're going to do this. Can we learn from each other to do it better? Um, and there is sort of fact-gathering as to how it's done in different places and so on. So I think this is a particular area thinking about sort of increasing secularization. I mean, it used to be filled up by religion teaching, maybe also partly by literature teaching, which, of course, still remains in place. Um, but I think this is an area in which people are kind of grappling for some, for some guidance and some ideas, right? And so it's, in a way, a, a, an area in which you can do some canon setting, yeah? And, and so in, in that sense, I'm actually quite hopeful that... Um, 
that it's that that you know that sort of innovative stuff that we're trying to do um, doesn't necessarily need to remove. I mean, isn't going to bump into barriers because there's nothing in place yet um, that would constrain us. It's not like you know trying to do alternative algebra. That's what I'm saying, right? <laughs> the algebra isn't there yet. Yeah. I think one of the things about the new new curriculum is that they've slimmed it down, you know, to focus on British history and mm. British values and things mm. like that. But that does that on one to, to one side of that, it's very focused on on the Britishness of our curriculum. But on the other, it's opened it up. So there's a lot. We're getting more work <coughs> in doing philosophy in secondary schools and certainly in the primary curriculum. There's more room for for this sort of these sort of exploratory discussions and, and looking at different worldviews and, and bringing in different texts and different um, stories to, to stimulate different thinking. More at the discretion of the head these days, I yeah. think, to bring the, to dis- uh-huh. determines what extra stuff comes in. Yeah. yeah. Uh, a question down here and then we'll come up to you, yeah? Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you very much. My name is Akram Khan. I'm a professor in particle physics at Brunel. I have a very simple question. When I go into schools, and I try to share with the students some aspect of science or particle physics, it, there is this notion of truth. You know, what is truth? And it goes back to uh, the earlier thing that was discussed about relativism. Truth is relative. Is there a hierarchy in, in, in our understanding of truth? And how is that communicated to the students? Because at the end, you know, they, you know, they say, well, you know, uh, that's your truth. You know, we think this is the way the universe got created and you, know, you have your own beliefs and you're getting into all these muddy areas. So when we, when we have some sort of, you know, sort of dialogue, it's very short and not, not, not too detailed, I find a sense of really a lack of uh, <coughs> understanding the basics of what truth is. And if we live in a multicultural society, then tolerance is good, but we have to be careful. Um, uh, anyone, anyone can step forward yeah. <laughs> well, if, that, if that was a simple question I'd love to hear a complicated one <laughs> um, so, so yeah I mean, I think that's a big issue actually I wanted to address this earlier with the first questioner um, but I think I, I winded on too long and thought no I won't <laughs> but um, the, 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 it's a very complicated idea because what we have in the in the world of philosophy in schools, is that you hear this a lot. People say, um, the, the teachers say to the children, the children say to us, it's, it's said all around, that in philosophy there's no right and wrong answers. There's no, you know, or in philosophy it's okay because you you, your opinions are always right. This sort of stuff gets said a lot. And at the Philosophy Foundation, we, we really feel very uncomfortable with this sort of idea. Um, so, for instance, we come at it a little bit more with a, a sort of logical underpinning so that you can, you know, you, one can be wrong in as far as they're incoherent or, you know, inconsistent or if you think that something in, is entailed by something else when in fact it's just maybe a suggestion or a possibility. These sorts of ways... So in other words, the logical aspect is a way in which you can be wrong. But when it comes to truth, it's such a, it's such a difficult area that the, the, one of the problems is that when we, when we start working with the children... The whole method itself very often gets bogged down by the truth, um, the metaphysics that underpin it all. So, for instance, Matthew Lippmann was a pragmatist. Okay, so he was coming at it from, or not a pragmatist, but he was coming at it from pragmatist assumptions about how philosophy works. 
Hence, he worked with a community of inquiry, which comes from the Pierce um, tradition. Uh, and the idea is that this is why a lot of people think that in philosophy with children, when it's being done, there's no right and wrong, because it's all about agreeing with each other, and that truth is in some way determined by something like a consensus or something like that. Um, but this is hugely problematic. It certainly, I certainly wouldn't buy into necessarily going in with pragmatist assumptions when I'm working with children. Uh, what I see philosophy as doing, philosophy itself is, I think the key value in philosophy is, is its re-evaluation. So whatever it is that may or may not be the case, whatever assumptions you're working with, they themselves are, are um, perfectly viable subjects for investigation in philosophy, in the group. Do you see what I mean? So you cannot go in with assumptions about what's true and what's not. Interestingly, even though I'm not a relativist, and I hear a lot of relativist stuff going around in these kinds of discussions, at the same time, there are assumptions coming from, from all sorts of people when they say, oh, but this leads to relativism, the assumption being that relativism is false. So, so you know, even that, a philosopher would say, we need to be wary of. Um, we can't commit one way or the other when we're, com- when we're conducting philosophy. It's re-evaluative. Sorry, we've got, got to go up here first. Did you want to... Yeah, I just want to just throw in... I mean, there is this, this kind of idea of John Rawls of, of reflective equilibrium, right? And, and, and I think that's sort of the, the, the kind of method that, that we're always using. I mean, we, we, we move back and forth between intuitive judgments about particular cases, and, of course, in some cases we disagree. Half of the room says this, the other half of the room says that. In some cases, we have firm intuitive judgments about particular cases, of it being wrong or right or whatever. And, and then what we try to do in order to, to solve the controversial cases is we try to figure out what kind of principles are underlying them and would give us guidance in these controversial cases. right? And, and so in order to do that, we try to set up scenarios in which we have clear in which we agree with each other about our intuitive judgments about those scenarios. And then we will use those in order to create the principles that give us the answer to the cases that we disagree about. Right? And I think that's the sort of method that you use in a classroom in order to, to resolve disagreement or at least understand what is underlying those disagreements, right? I mean, it works great with the old trolley problem. Here is a little strange, I mean, a little puzzle that you throw at, at the students in a classroom. You say, look, suppose you have five people who all need, uh, need organs, a left kidney, a right kidney, whatever, right? And a new person comes into the hospital. You say, let's catch that person, cut up the person, distribute the organs, sacrifice the one in order to save the five. Isn't it great? Oh, no, 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 you can't do that, right? Then you compare it with a case where some trolley is going wild. It's going to run over five people, but you're standing there and there's a switch. And if you change, if you, if you, if you, if you switch, uh, switch the switch, right, then the trolley will go to a sidetrack, but there is one person there. You sacrifice the one in order to save the five. A lot of people think that's okay. There's disagreement about that, but a lot of people will think that's okay. What's the difference between those cases? Try to come up with the principles. Yeah? And then there are real-life cases out there in the world where we really didn't know what to do. 
There was a case actually where in London here when the when the bombs were coming in in World War II, where, these, where there was, were questions about maybe we can divert the bombs by using spy, counter spies to give information back to the Germans, this and that. But no, then we would be responsible for the deaths of those people. What were we going to do? Right? These were very difficult cases. But what you do in order to come up with some kind of resolution there is you try to find the underlying principles by sketching out scenarios in which we do seem to have intuitive judgments about which we agree. And that's how we go for truth. <laughs> so, <laughs> sorry. It's okay. Hi, so I'm Alec Howells. I'm an undergraduate here in the Department of Philosophy. Uh, so I'm, I hypothesize that you'll probably say yes to this question, but I was wondering whether you could provide any uh, anecdotal empirical evidence from your experience teaching the children as to whether, uh, assuming, as you seem to imply earlier, you have a criterion of a successful class or such, uh, classes which are better than others teaching the primary school children, do you find classes in which the children present themselves as the characters of the stories themselves, as a Anne's character, or does when he says, I am the ship of Theseus, or say when they act out the stories, as compared to when you read the story in its original form to them, so in which, say, the classmates can involve themselves by stating that they are the characters, and so the moral dilemmas apply to them as individuals, or on the contrary, do you prefer to keep it impersonal, as, say, in the style of our thought experiments, where we prefer to keep all things equal, and if so, why, why would you keep it that way? Take it as um, uh, I use role play a lot, mm-hmm. yeah, in stories. It's a really great way of bringing to So, for instance, it's very difficult to. Uh, dilemmas like the trolley problem has just been described. Uh, sometimes I heard a discussion about them being a form of violence. Using a dilemma is a kind of ethical violence. Who told you that? It's, it was going around. People were complaining about the, the use of this in classrooms. And I do know what it means. I do, I do have a sympathy with this in the sense that when you're working with very young children, if you go in and do the yeah. trolley problem, you can see that it's going gonna, it's gonna to make them feel uncomfortable. And if you stand there and say, I'm sorry, but you've got to pull the trigger, <laughs> you know, it just has a certain... I feel very uncomfortable doing that with a group, of, a group of primary school children. Very, yeah. very uncomfortable. No, I'm sorry, but you can't get away with it. You've got to pull the lever. Or, or not, but either way. <laughs> um, so anyway, I, I do feel uncomfortable with that. I mean, with, with year five and six and upwards, it's fine. You know, they, they love it. You try put, stopping them. From, um, <laughs> but below that. However, where, however, what you can do with things like um, the Odyssey, for instance, was one of my favourites, is that you can say some, something like, um, OK, so, so Odysseus is coming up and he knows that behind this big you know, pile of uh, uh, foliage is, is a monster hiding in the hiding that they can't see and the ship don't know, that the crew don't know it's in there but they can see the whirlpool and they're all looking at that and they're hoping that they're going to steer clear of the whirlpool now this is the thing you see, this is his dilemma does he tell the crew about Skiller hiding up there or does he just remain silent and you know and allow the ship to be out of danger from the whirlpool but in danger from Skiller and they will lose six men because he knows this through Tiresias's um, um, prophecies. So it's a real dilemma here, the dilemma of the leader, the captain, the politician, you know, should I tell the men about this, this thing? Now, if, it's really great because what you can do is you can say to the children, you can say, um, well, what I'm going to ask you to do here is I'm going to ask you to imagine that you're Odysseus. Okay? Now, you're the captain of a ship, so you have to make a decision one way or another. 
And what this story enables you to do, by putting them in role, the story itself gives a kind of, a kind of safety zone, a kind of distance, which gives them, protects them, I think, in some way. So I feel a lot happier sort of being a bit harsh on them and saying, I'm sorry, but you're Odysseus, you've got to make a decision, than I would doing something artificial. Because also, of course, this is a, a, a supposed world. This is, this is a real place. This has real you know, um, antecedents that led to this. Uh, it's not just a stickman scenario that, 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 that we all feel so uncomfortable with and won't buy into because it's got no context. Um, and getting children to buy into stickman scenarios or thought experiments is very difficult. But this works really well, I think. And that's the same reason why um, I- emotional vicarious wo- vicariousness works in novels, that a child who can't even begin to think about their own emotional problem of you know, divorce or separation or something can begin to safely think through the issues, not even realising that they're doing it by reading through somebody else's story. So that, that level of being one step away is yep. enormously protective at an emotional level and one of the great values for children of, of reading you know, sort of family novels. And one of the great problems is in this sort of sexist, uh, you know, gender-idiotic, blue-brains, pink-brains, new you know, so boys like to read about non-fiction girls any like to, you know, I mean, this, this is a great loss to the boys, because often it was the only way in which they could think through emotional things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's not socially easy for them to do it. Yeah. And it was one of their only methods in this country. And you certainly don't come across this attitude in any other European country. I've never come across this attitude that, you know, boys don't read this or girls only read that. Anywhere else, I thought it was quite interesting the new science results, you know, the dreadful statistics of girls in science will bear out that our society has just bought this neuro bollocks, you know, basic <laughs> <laughs> line and synchronous education in some areas. You can also play with you can also play with story distance. So for instance, you can tell stories in the second person. And this is easier to do in the telling. When you're telling a story, it's easier to do it in the second person than it is to, to write it. Although there's some notable exceptions with those choose-your-own-adventure books where you turn to the page. And there's a, but you can tell a story in the second person, person quite comfortably. You know, the children can be the, the crew members. And you can say, you are trapped in the cave of the Cyclops. You have to remain silent. And if you move, you know, just an inch, the Cyclops will find you. It's a really good way of keeping the children quiet. <laughs> works really well when they get a bit rowdy. Um, so yeah, so we so we use so this way we can actually use the threat of decapitation, um, cannibalism. Um, yeah, there's all sorts of things we can do in the classroom that you just can't do without stories. I see what they get a bit worried about. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, it's a bit like the C.S. Lewis line, you know. We read to know that we're not alone, right? I mean, yeah. that's sort of the emotional engagement. But I yeah. wonder if there's a difference, maybe, between reading a story that you can connect with as an individual and discussing a story as a group. Uh, do you? I mean, do you huh. have, a, have a feeling about how one might react differently to, you know, reading something off a page? Uh, as I, a, I I can't I can't. I don't know. That means sort of. I, I certainly know that what interests me about the way children read is that they read what they need to read. Yeah. So if I am getting letters, for example, about uh, you know a, a novel in which there are two children and a divorce, all the children who are divorced 
that are three children will write saying this novel is about three children who and it'd be a book report this children is about four people this child this book is about a child who and when you actually read their letter that comes with it it's obvious that they've just identified to such an extent that they don't know how many characters there were in the book yeah, yeah. Uh, so they're reading what they want to read not what's actually on the page that, i think that's quite valuable yeah. mm. i think we've got time for one more question did you want to it was it was more of a comment. I just um, wanted to, to clear up because it, I think you were assuming about about my teaching a couple of things that I think were pretty unfair. So I, w- I wouldn't oh, no, I, w- I wouldn't assume no, no. I would never tell students that relatively. I, I would always leave them to question the key assumptions. That, so I'd never I would never say what is right or what's wrong. I'd, I would encourage students to question in the way that you suggested. Oh yeah, no, I wasn't suggesting that you I, weren't for a minute. No. <laughs> um, but it related to my to my other point, which I wanted to make, which was that. I think a lot of teachers are doing the same thing. Good, good teachers that manage to find the time to do it. I don't see what I don't see it as an entirely separate thing. So I've been working at King's College London with a research group on a critical realist approach to religious education, where essentially we are doing the, the same sort of thing. And I've been working with a lot of teachers, trying to encourage them to do similar things. Where we and, and I think one of the differences is that. Well, there's a bit more time to develop the, the stories and so on. So I just wanted to raise the point that, that um, I think working with the teachers as well would be a really good thing to do because, for example, in religious education, there's been a lot of working at interpretation of stories and so on, and it'd be a shame not to draw on the resources that are already there in the schools. Yeah, great. Thank you. Um, absolutely. We do work with teachers, and we work in the classroom with the teachers present, and we, we do... Um, find out about their class from them and work with them on the curriculum that they're developing and we work our philosophy lessons around what they're working on at the moment so thank you yeah, so yeah very, what we do is very closely aligned to the curriculum in that sense as we work with teachers and... any other co- comments or questions before we close uh, no in which case thank you all uh, so much for coming and uh, thank you very much to our speakers uh, for entertaining us for the last hour and a half Uh, As I said before, Anne and Peter will be outside signing their books if you want to go and have a chat. I'm sure Luke will uh, also be hanging around. I will as well. We can all hang around. So thank you all very much.